Hello and welcome to the first of a series of episodes from The Violet on the Culture Wars, a massive group of ethical, cultural, moral discussions which seem to garner a huge amount of uh, polemical opinion online and not a lot of cold analysis. So we're going to be doing our best to add a little calmness and rationality to a series of emotive topics, but that doesn't necessarily mean we'll be absolutely right, and we'd love you to keep us in check by getting in touch with any comments, questions, queries, or disagreements that you do have, either to our Twitter handle, which is at underscore the violet underscore, to our email address, which is contact.theviolet at gmail.com, or via the website, which is www.theviolet.net. This week, we'll be looking in particular at controversial statues and their removal, museum exhibits in the country featuring non-British artefacts and how they should be treated, and the taking of the knee by the England football team, uh, the group of fans, in inverted commas, who have chosen to boo that, and how that fits into the broader political scene. If there's anything you feel we've left out, please do get in touch with us. And if you enjoy the episode, please do remember to share it and create a little more of our favourite word, dialogue. Thanks for listening. So, in stereotypical fashion, the first thing that we need to talk about in this episode is what the culture wars are. So, the culture wars are a relatively new political cleavage or political split, uh, a way of dividing up different political views in society. Uh, The traditional cleavage or split in politics is economic uh, or based on class, the idea that some people would prefer uh, a more hands-off government, one which intervenes less in the economy, Uh, one which is, to put it simplistically, more free market, whereas others would uh, support a more interventionist government, one which taxes more, one which redistributes more, one in which there are more nationalised industries. So this is classically the right-left economic cleavage in politics. The cultural wars are a cleavage which is based on cultural issues and issues of identity uh, rather than issues of how the economy should be run. And I'm actually not a big fan of the word because it implies that this is sort of the first time that this has happened or the only place that this is happening. Uh, and the one thing that we need to remember is that in different uh, in different countries and different cultures and different polities all around the world and throughout history, uh, the sort of prevailing political issues have been different from place to place and time to time. And these sort of cultural disagreements where the group of people in let's say a country to to simplify, begin to disagree on what it means to be part of that culture. Um, And different sort of subcultures emerge, different uh, moral values emerge, and people argue over which ones are correct. This is by no means what the culture wars, in inverted commas, is by no means the first time this has happened, or necessarily the most important time this has happened, but it is the general term that is used to describe uh, in the UK and the US at the moment that particular political disagreement between people who define their culture in different ways. So we say it's newish for the UK. Um, it's probably emerged in the last decade or so, and Brexit has been the defining, uh, the defining moment of the culture war in the UK. But the culture war in the Western world is something that began in the USA in the 1980s um, and was then reinforced in the 1990s 
primarily as a Republican Party political strategy. Uh, as a way to win over voters they thought they otherwise couldn't on economic issues by appealing to cultural issues instead. The reason why this culture war is so consequential uh, is because it has increasingly confused the traditional uh, divide in politics between left and right, uh, and it therefore makes a huge difference to voting behaviour, electoral outcomes, and so on. It means that words like capitalist or socialist increasingly do not accurately describe the way that people think in politics. Um, and there are progressive libertarians and fiscally irresponsible social conservatives. The lines are no longer as clearly cut as they once were, which is why this is an important issue to discuss and try to unpick. And at least in my opinion, I think a lot of the uh, poor political analysis out there at the moment in the UK, uh, a lot of political analysts in the news who are getting very confused by electoral results recently, um, I think the reason why that's happening is people's failure to understand this shift in um, in political divides and political cleavages between people and a tendency to still try and see things in the old-fashioned left and right dichotomy where the left is associated with a high level of uh, government um, intervention in the economy, but also with quite progressive values. And the right is associated with less intervention in the economy, but more conservative, more traditionalist values. Uh, and increasingly, there are a large number of people who have uh, who don't conform to both sides of that. So who either support a large level of government intervention in the economy but are actually very traditionalist when it comes to cultural issues and vice versa people who uh, support a more free market economy but actually have very progressive cultural values and this of course may partially explain the the shift to the conservative party in the north of of england um, and the the collapse of the so-called red wall in the 2019 general election but it's also something that's happening in the other direction uh, and we might start to see now a collapse in the blue wall in the south of England as voters who are generally quite fiscally conservative uh, but socially progressive might begin to shift away from the Conservative Party uh, towards either Labour or the Liberal Democrats. You can also see it in the underlying characteristics which correlate well with the way in which people vote, which is increasingly uh, less to do with income uh, and more to do with education and also geography. There is increasingly a difference between rural and urban voters in the UK, uh, which previously uh, didn't exist to the same level. So to get more specific, we keep talking about cultural divides uh, and divisions on cultural issues, what people uh, believe it means to be part of this culture, to be British, or people's moral uh, values, but we haven't talked about any any specific issues. So, what are the sort of dividing lines over which the culture wars are being fought in the UK? So, one big broad issue is is national identity and history, and how we commemorate it, and how we remember it, and how it forms part of the country's fabric. So, in the UK, this discussion has mostly been about the legacy of of empire and colonialism and the slave trade. Um, in the US, less about empire, but definitely about the slave trade and uh, histories of segregation uh, within the United States. Uh, another issue linking to the idea of national identity is uh, which cultures are incompatible with the so-called national identity. Uh, and this often manifests in rejection slash acceptance of immigrants, refugees, 
uh, and specifically in the West Islam, which is seen by the traditionalist wing of the culture wars as uniquely unsuited to integration. Uh, one current issue which has which shouldn't really be uh, a cultural issue or a marker of morality or ethics or identity, uh, but which has very much become one, is uh, responses to coronavirus um, and whether we should have to wear masks, whether we should have lockdowns, whether we should have to accept vaccines. Uh, and that's increasingly become a polarised issue between progressives and traditionalists. Uh, yet another issue is to do with sexual morality in terms of trans rights and whether trans people should be allowed to use certain bathrooms or non-binary gender identity and whether we should recognise this. Within the US there are a few specific issues which I don't think uh, have made their way over to the UK yet in terms of culture war issues. Uh, but in the US, abortion uh, is a massive dividing line between progressives and traditionalists, uh, as is climate change. I think that the UK is a little bit ahead of the US on that curve uh, and hasn't really fallen prey to those as, as divisive issues, which is not to say that they can't become issues in the future, uh, but presently they aren't. And the fact that the sort of dividing lines in the UK and the US on the culture wars are subtly different in that way um, should sort of uh, flag up to listeners that, that the culture wars is not one massive phenomenon and quite a misleading term. This is merely the sort of process of disagreement by which cultures change and cultural values change, um, which is a... Uh, sort of phenomenon, historical and political phenomenon that we've actually mentioned plenty of times on the podcast before in various different episodes. This is merely the sort of uh, modern convulsion that British society is going through. Another thing that I think is worth pointing out, uh, but that we'll deal with in the next podcast rather than this one, is the degree to which these cultural wars are genuine organic processes of change and the tensions which arise from that natural change over time, or the, the degree to which these are manufactured crises or manufactured divides in society, which have been created by certain politicians or pushed forwards or aggravated by certain politicians for electoral gain. So, as we've mentioned a couple of times before, a lot of these dividing issues are about defining what it means to be part of the nation. Uh, and now we're moving into specifics, I'll stop saying part of the nation and I will say British. Um, and the way in which we create national identities is through the creation of a shared history. The idea of uh, a British group of people, a British nation, uh, stretching back throughout history with all of its sort of heroes and villains and significant moments. And so the national story and therefore the national identity manifests itself in lots of rather sort of mundane ways that we see every day such as uh, museums and museum exhibits and what they show and how they show it uh, statues and historical sites uh, street names organization names blue plaques on important buildings as well as uh, books magazines news and um, history lessons, history classrooms, something that I'm not the expert on here. Uh, so it's it's these manifestations, the way they are seen and the way in which some people would like to change the way that they're seen, uh, that we will be focusing on in this episode. So I guess the big starting point, because this has been in the news so frequently uh, in recent times, is statues. And the controversy over, over statues in 
the UK at the moment is specifically with regards to statues of colonial or imperial figures who in their, their various um, exploits around the world uh, in Southern Africa, in India, um, in, in West Africa, in, in North America, did some pretty horrific things. The dividing line in the culture war then is, should we tear down these statues, should we remove them, or are they an important part of the nation's identity, uh, should we retain them, should we keep them up in public spaces? So perhaps the most uh, famous example of this in the UK was a statue of a man called Edward Colston, uh, who was a merchant from Bristol, who became very wealthy in the 17th and early 18th centuries, uh, and was a major philanthropist at the time. He built uh, or donated money to a lot of causes in Bristol. Colston Hall is a major public building in the city. Uh, There is also a rather posh girl school named after him uh, and various streets and other parts of the city of Bristol uh, and so a statue was erected in 1895 to, to commemorate uh, what he did for the people of Bristol and the money he donated for them. However, uh, he was not just a merchant, he was a slave merchant and the money that he donated to the city of Bristol was earned through the slave trade and so the existence of his statue in Bristol became a key division in the culture war between traditionalists who argued that his statue should stand as a major local benefactor and as a significant character in the history of Bristol and progressives who wanted to see his statue removed because they believed it was celebrating uh, the slave trade. And in June last year, progressive pro- um, progressive protesters, that's harder to say than it sounds, um, pulled his statue down and dumped it in Bristol Harbour. I think something which is really important in an analysis of Colston and his statue specifically is that the statue was put up, it was put up considerably after his death, about 200 years uh, after he passed away. And the statue was not put up in isolation, even though it was put up to commemorate his philanthropy in Bristol. Uh, it was part of a, of a wave of, of hundreds of statues put up across the UK at the time. Um, because, as we said, culture wars are not new. And in the late 19th century, there was something of a culture war in Victorian society. Uh, between those who proposed empire was a good thing, it was a civilizing mission, it enriched the country, it was necessary for Britain's global prestige. And those who, sometimes for ethical reasons, but mostly uh, believing that the empire was a drain uh, on public funds, opposed uh, the extension of the British Empire. And so Colston's statue was not just a memorial for his philanthropy, uh, it was a cultural statement of intent that Britain's empire was a good thing and that those who contributed uh, to it and to its foundation should be remembered in a positive light. I think it is an interesting side point worth mentioning as well that we have a tendency to forget when uh, faced with uh, statues that have been around for hundreds of years or paintings or or uh, depictions of, of people from hundreds or thousands of years ago, we have a tendency to forget that the decision to create a statue of someone, uh, a monument in somebody's honour, a painting of somebody, whatever, is in itself a political decision to venerate that person and was so at the time. And uh, because those are the only things that survived to the modern day, we have a tendency to sort of assume that these... Uh, kings or emperors or merchants or important people, whoever they were, 
um, were widely venerated and widely considered to be great people uh, and forget that there would have been debate about whether that person was worth having a statue of. There were people who disagreed with uh, leaders who disagreed with policies. Politics has happened for as long as there have been people, but we tend to forget that when we're talking about politics that happened hundreds or thousands of years ago and which has long since been forgotten. And this is a point that I think some people find very, very tricky to understand in terms of historical analysis, that the world can't really be divided neatly into heroes or villains. The fact that Colston was a philanthropist, that he charitably donated to the city of Bristol, that is something that we can say is a good thing. He did improve the lives of people in the city. He He did contribute to future infrastructure. The fact that he enslaved tens of thousands of people um, and led to well, to tens of thousands of, of deaths and uncountable suffering is, of course, a horrific thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a very bad thing. And the two do not invalidate the other. The fact that he did horrible things doesn't mean that the philanthropy was, quote, bad. Um, and the fact that he did charitable things doesn't absolve him uh, of the horrific crimes he committed in the transatlantic passage. When we think about history, and this is something that I've written about before on the Violet website, we have to avoid falling into the balance sheet trap or the balance sheet approach and think about a sliding scale of good and evil cancelling each other out. Historical figures have complex legacies, and we have to make sure that we think critically about those legacies, think about both the good and the bad that individuals have done and the different ways in which they have contributed to the world, rather than thinking these things cancel each other out. That being said, I do think it's also important to note that statues are not a way in which this debate can be had in a balanced and complex way. Statues are inherent celebrations of a figure. No one puts up a statue in order to denigrate someone. Uh, There were some people who made, I think, quite disingenuously the argument that Colston's statue would help to uh, you know, remind people of the horrors of the slave trade uh, and make sure that it wasn't forgotten. No one genuinely believes that is the purpose of Colson's statue. The statue is a celebration of the man. And therefore, whilst we have to avoid, avoid the dichotomy of thinking that someone just did good things or bad things, a statue is not a good place to have that debate. And the story of Edward Colson um, is a good reminder of that complexity in all historical figures' lives. Um, and it's really crucial, we think, to remember that that complexity exists for all historical figures uh, and that no one ever, uh, as important or as unimportant as they may have been, was a saint or the devil. Um, And that we need to remember this when we're discussing these issues because there is an unhealthy tendency both among traditionalists and among progressives to conveniently ignore information about historical figures that doesn't back up their idea of them and for both groups to search for heroes in their story and search for villains in their story um, to create a culture based around those figures and we need to remember that that's just not possible there are not hero figures there are not villain figures there are lots of complex figures Um, putting uh, historical figures on a pedestal and saying these people were brilliant and we need to follow their example is very very difficult because there is a dark side to the history of just about everybody
I would argue, therefore, that statues are, in general, not a good idea. Uh, because, as we've said, statues are one-sided. They are inherent celebrations, and historical figures are complex. They do good things, they do terrible things. Um, and statues obviously commemorate only the good and ignore the horrific things that they have done. Um, statues are not at all necessary for learning about history or remembering history. Uh, and this is again another quite disingenuous argument that was made by, by people saying the statue should be kept up. If we remove the statue, we're removing history. This clearly isn't true. I mean, after World War II, all of the Nazi statues, all of the Hitler statues, all the swastikas was torn down in Germany. We obviously still know who Hitler was. We still obviously know who the Nazis were. With the possible exception of ex-Crystal Palace and Wales goalkeeper Wayne Hennessy. <laughs> <laughs> Most people learn history in school uh, from, from books, from academic works, and you would get a much better understanding of history from those places than you would from a statue which you want to buy uh, and never really think, um, you know, why is it there? Uh, quite paradoxically, I think tearing down the statue of Colson probably did more um, to, to make people aware of what he did and his legacy than the statue being up ever did. So in, in terms of statues, uh, I would, um, if I had to pick a side of the culture wars, agree with progressives that it's probably not a good idea to have statues, uh, celebratory statues uh, of colonial figures who did horrific things like Clive in India or Rhodes in South Africa or Colston uh, in, in North America and West Africa uh, but nor is there an argument to put up statues of other people instead. Uh, one thing which has garnered a lot of controversy recently uh, is the uh, fourth plinth on Trafalgar Square is soon to host a statue of um, Chilwembe who's a Malawian revolutionary uh, in the early, uh, early 1900s um, who also killed a lot of people uh, in the course of his revolutionary uprising against uh, the British colonial authorities. And yes, his, his attempt to, to overcome the, the colonial government and to, uh, to liberate his people, a good thing. The fact that he beheaded loads of people as well, not such a good thing. Uh, we should avoid celebrating individuals uh, and instead think about them critically uh, with historical analysis. And the importance of remembering these figures uh, and drawing lessons from their lives, as complex and as consequential as those are, um, is something we need to remember and brings us on from talking about statues, uh, where I think we both agree, because we're always going to end up celebrating questionable individuals, but that those individuals do need to be remembered in history because what they did was important. Uh, but the way we remember them and the way we teach them uh, does need to come into question. And I think there is, there is a very sound argument that history needs to be taught in a better way, um, well, throughout the educational system at both primary and, and secondary level. And what I mean by that is that the... the the legacy of, of imperialism and empire and colonialism and the slave trade need to be explored in a way which is not just nationalistic and jingoistic and celebratory and that the figures who, who, who went out and built the empire uh, should not be remembered just as explore, explorers and, and merchants uh, and, quote, great men, uh, but also as people who exploited others, who inflicted a, 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 a great deal of, of grave human suffering. Uh, this has often been described by 
progressive uh, leaning figures in the in the culture wars as decolonizing the curriculum and by decolonizing the curriculum they they mean what I've said that we should teach the the more unsavory parts of empire and the more unsavory parts of British history we shouldn't just teach it in a manner uh, which celebrates it and this is something I totally agree with uh, I do agree that history needs to be taught in a more balanced way I do agree that we should not just be celebrating the country's past and that the point of history isn't to make you feel nice and warm and fuzzy about your country or about the past uh, it's about critically analyzing past events and past figures however I do also think that the word decolonize is pretty unhelpful in the sense that when someone who doesn't already know the word or the phrase uh, decolonize encounters it they do not think teach history in a balanced way they do not think present the the bad parts of, of empire um, and colonialism as uh, as well as the ways in which empire was foundational to British identity um, it's it's a phrase it's a word that doesn't make sense unless you are already in the circle of people who agree with it and know what it means and I do think that this is something which is unhelpful uh, in the culture wars even though I broadly define myself as a progressive uh, and were I to were I forced to pick a side in the culture wars um, I would define myself as a progressive I don't think that this is a useful way of convincing people if you have a set of phrases or buzzwords which no one understands outside of the existing circle you will not convince anyone else in order to to win the culture wars uh, if, if such a victory is possible you need to find ways of communicating which people on the other side of the aisle understand and this sort of alternative dialect is particularly interesting. It shows that the way in which a lot of people engage with the culture wars is not about um, a changing set of moral values and trying to convince as many people as possible to join them in, in, in having those moral values, but it is about uh, showing oneself off as being part of a particular cultural group. Because a way in which people do that... Uh, and this is true of, of all cultural groups all around the world, is through the language they use and through using particular uh, vernacular phrases that are identify them as being part of a particular group. And, and you can think of many. Um, for example, uh, most Muslims, regardless of whether they are Arabic or even speak any Arabic, drop in a lot of Arabic phrases into their everyday vernacular, such as wallahi or inshallah or whatever else um, when talking about football a lot of people adopt an alternate language uh, and spend most of their time talking about quality um, uh, and the extent to which a human being is rated which is a concept to which I, I, I still don't understand um, and the same is true when it comes to culture wars and there is a particular sort of progressive dialect and a certain set of words um, which are used to identify people as being part of the progressive clique such as privilege, um, problematic, uh, decolonize, uh, intersectional um, and I'm, I'm sure listeners can think of a few more. And it's possible to explain and use all of these concepts without using that particular word. And if we want to uh, convince other people of particular things, if we want to bring people on side, if progressives really want to win, in inverted commas, the culture wars, the way to do that is to bring other people on side and convince them of 
of whatever the progressive uh, agenda, whatever the progressive idea is. And to do that, progressives need to learn to speak the language of traditionalists and to put their arguments into that language. Equally, though, I, I would say this is not just a problem with progressives framing uh, their arguments in inaccessible language. Um, quite often, traditionalists will actively misrepresent uh, progressive stances and strawman them and portray them as something they're not. Um, one such thing which is which is often very poorly understood and very fuzzy and abstract and lends itself to this uh, m- mischaracterization is critical race theory. Uh, by which progressives usually mean, as we said, teach a more balanced version of history in schools, uh, but which traditionalists will often misrepresent as hate all the white people. With regards to the taking down of statues, we both agree um, that statues are not a good thing, that you shouldn't celebrate individuals, particularly individuals who have done horrific things, regardless of whether or not they did good things as well. Um, Taking down statues though, has often become uh, more about, just like using specific forms of language, virtue signaling and symbolic gestures. And this, in my view, uh, even though I generally agree with the progressive account of of society and and political functions, is not useful. Uh, You can take down a statue and that might stop a, a, a horrific figure being celebrated, Um, but that does not actually improve anything for people going forwards. Um, That correction uh, of a perceived past wrong does not actually make things better for anyone in the present. And rather than focusing on correcting past wrongs, we should be more concerned with concrete policy improvements for people in the future. Rather than concentrating on taking down statues, we should be focused on welfare reforms to make sure that people that are disadvantaged the most get the help that they need. Uh, We should be focused on creating a humane and robust refugee policy um, and a sensible immigration policy. These things are more useful in terms of improving the quality of life for people today uh, rather than correcting wrongs in the past. I do accept that, um, you know, the kind of walk and chew gum argument that you can do both at the same time. Uh, but often it's the symbolic gestures which seem to take the foreground uh, and seem to eat up most of the the media attention and the organising power. Um, And I do think more effort needs to be invested into concrete policy action in the present. And if there's one sort of message for listeners uh, from this podcast, it probably comes from that, which is that cultural disagreements and cultural splits such as this tend to manifest themselves for most people in virtue signaling one way or the other, rather than thinking deeply about these issues and coming to their own nuanced uh, conclusions. And that we've talked a little about uh, progressives and progressive uh, shibboleths. Shibboleth is a great word for this. For those listeners who don't know, it means a particular sort of um, symbol, be it a word or um, or a pictorial symbol or whatever, uh, of a cultural group that that shows you as being part of that group and so for progressives it's often about using the right vocabulary when talking about issues such as race Um, and for traditionists it's often more to do with actual symbols so poppies for example wearing a poppy has become a classic traditionalist symbol in the uk Um, support for the military uh, support for the royal family for example Uh, support for the england football team to a certain extent Um, and that 
simply showing oneself off as being part of one group or the other creates more of a divide and doesn't help actually solve the thorny and complex issues at the heart of this disagreement. And so, as I said, if there's one message for listeners here, it's to think carefully about the extent to which we um, say things or do things or show things just to show off a particular version of ourselves and the extent to which we actually believe those um, as well as the extent to which what we believe is something that we have uh, sat down and thought deeply about and discussed with others and uh, debated with others and to what extent it's merely something we've accepted because we want to be seen as part of a particular group. Which, if I if I may hazard a, a footballing hot take um, on the politics of football rather than uh, the football on the pitch, is why I think the England football team has been so successful in transcending the culture wars. And to move away from statues for a second, um, I'm sure all our listeners will know that at the start of the Euros, the England football team taking the knee uh, in advance of uh, matches to protest racial injustice uh, was seen by, by many people as an endorsement of Black Lives Matter as a Marxist organisation rather than Black Lives Matter as a, as a movement. Um, and there was widespread booing of that uh, by many traditionalists in the culture war divide. Um, those boos have, have largely died out by now. Um, and I think a lot of that has, has been to do with the fact that as well as taking that symbolic stance, um, they've also highlighted, you know, clear and obvious examples of of like black excellence in the football team, and it becomes then hard to argue with uh, the fact because, as well as the symbolic uh, movement, Southgate has obviously put forward excellent black footballers like Sterling, Saka, Calvin Phillips, who who then, you know, prove the point uh, of of equality and um, and and racial harmony, so to speak. Um, and so it's not just the symbolism which is useful, but the practical action also. I have a whole podcast's worth of stuff to say about racism in football in this country. Uh, but on kneeling before matches, uh, a couple of things to say on, on how it is a good example of the, the sort of uh, phenomena we're talking about. The first one is kneeling before a football match by itself does nothing. It is a symbol. Um, and so... There is an argument there about virtue signaling and about trying to be seen as someone who is against racism rather than actually doing something about it. Uh, and Les Ferdinand, who is a uh, ex-black football player, um, who's now, I think, just, manager of just QPR. He's still black. He just no longer Sorry, oh, yeah, a black <laughs> ex-footballer, uh, who I think is manager of QPR now, yeah. or at least part of the QPR backroom staff, um, has spoken up about how he... Uh, finds it quite hypocritical that the FA supports players kneeling before matches but isn't actually doing anything sort of concrete to address racial issues in football and, and that's a whole other issue. Um, but the fact that people object to the symbol as sort of as little or as much substance as there might be behind the symbol um, shows the reason why symbols to a certain extent are needed. Um, I would probably agree with the argument that kneeling before games is pointless uh, and we should probably stop doing it if it weren't for all the people booing people kneeling before the game uh, which shows the sort of depth of racism in Britain and in British football 
The other thing I want to bring into this is you might have noticed I've been saying kneeling before the game, not taking the knee. Uh, and I think another part of, uh, or another weird quirk of this that shows the extent to which these disagreements are about uh, showing which culture we want to be seen as part of, taking a knee uh, comes from American football, Colin Kaepernick, um, I don't know who he plays for, I don't know enough about American football, but I think he's a quarterback, uh, began kneeling during the American National Anthem to protest against Trump and various Trump policies and racism in America, uh, and that's been transported across to the UK. Um, and the phrase taking a knee is very American. No one in this country says taking a knee when you kneel down. Uh, and no one did until this uh, sort of sporting protest came across. And I think that exacerbates the extent to which traditionalists see this as being tied explicitly to BLM, as being an American thing, as being not part of British football, as being not part of our culture, and shows the extent to which we need to be careful with our phrasing. Um, and the extent to which people are getting angry about symbols and about the culture they wish to be seen as part of, not about the actual issues at the heart of this, which is the depth of racism in the UK and the extent to which that manifests itself in football. Yeah, and ju just to clarify something that you said, there, there is, of course, I think a perfectly reasonable objection that kneeling down before football games doesn't actually improve anything. It's virtue signaling. It's symbolic it's not something worthwhile um, but actively booing it is something else entirely uh, actively booing it shows that you disagree not only with the symbol really but the sentiment and I would say that the the, the Venn diagram of people who think that take, taking the knee is virtue signaling and we should do more to combat racism and the people who boo the taking of the knee is two separate circles um, there is not an overlap there um, and it's really important to stress that saying it is symbolic is not the same as saying we should oppose the sentiment I, I should also clarify just in case listeners are, are worried um, calling it taking the knee mildly irks me booing it absolutely infuriates me I'm not trying to draw a parallel between those two <laughs> so Building back to the, the central point of how cultures tell their stories uh, and how nations build their identities, another thing which is very prominent in the, the current iteration of the British culture wars are museums and what role museums play in nation building and how museums should be presented, particularly uh, in the case of exhibits or artefacts which are taken from other countries, i.e. from outside of Britain. Uh, and again to to simplify no or, or again the the simplistic cultural divide is progressives believe everything in museums which isn't british should go back to where it initially came from um and traditionalists would argue that britain has collated or collected those items from around the world britain rightfully owns them they form part of a well in the case of a in the case of the british museum they form part of a nationally constructed narrative um, and that those things should remain in Britain. And I imagine a lot of listeners will already have their views on this particular topic, as with most of the topics that we're going to discuss in the sort of Culture Wars series of episodes. Um, so what we might add to the discussion here is to say that, again, there is a dangerous dichotomy in this particular debate. There is a dangerous division between relatively extreme 
um, positions, with the progressive position being that basically everything in British museums that's not from Britain uh, should be sort of repatriated to wherever it came from, and a traditionalist view that nothing should be repatriated to where it came from. And we'd like to point out that there is a certain degree of nuance um, to be had in uh, opinions that fall somewhere in between. So in some cases, there are um, particular exhibits or particular items in Britain which we can trace exactly who they were taken from. Uh, they were taken by force, they were taken with no degree of consent, and those particular items can be given back to whoever it was they were taken from. But cultures do not own items. Items are owned by people or organisations and in many cases things are complicated by the fact that the personal organisation from whom an item was taken no longer exists. So we might find it instructive here to look at a few specific examples. Uh, in the case of the Benin bronzes which are scattered all around the world but quite a few of them uh, are in the British Museum. They came from the Kingdom of Benin, and they were taken from the Kingdom of Benin in a punitive expedition by the British military in West Africa, I believe in the late 1800s or the early 1900s, so a hundred years ago, uh, give or take. Now, the Kingdom of Benin no longer exists uh, as, an, as an independent state, um, but there is still um, a Benin identity, there is still a Benin sub-national monarchy, uh, and Benin, or the Kingdom of Benin, is now part of Nigeria. Um, so in that case, even though the entity is not exactly the same, uh, we can we can recognize a continuity between organizations and we can say that is someone to whom the Benin bronzes can be returned. Um, there are other cases that are that are perhaps trickier uh, where it's uh, where it's more difficult to I guess establish a clear continuity uh, of of an organization or a body or a person. Uh, for example, ancient Egyptian artifacts um, from like Pharaonic Egypt, uh, statues of Ramesses and so on, uh, those are from a culture which does not exist anymore. Uh, there is a modern Republic of Egypt, but the Arab Republic of Egypt bears almost no cultural similarity uh, with the, the Egypt in which those artifacts were produced. Um, and so in those cases, it's very difficult to figure out where they should go or who rightfully owns them. In other cases, uh, such as artifacts from Palmyra, uh, was built in what is now modern-day Syria, but by the Romans. Uh, are those artifacts which should go to Italy, uh, or should they go to Syria? So in certain cases, like the Benin bronzes, like the Elgin marbles, for example, uh, it is fairly easy to draw cultural continuity uh, between where they were taken from, and it's easy to establish that artifact was taken from this place, uh, and this organization um, has a direct continuity, and it should go back there. Uh, in others, it's much trickier to identify to whom or where or to which organization it should be returned. And in those cases where it can be clearly identified who the organization or the person is to whom the artifact should be returned, and if it was taken non-consensually or by force, um, or in the case of the Elgin marbles purchased from a power that was occupying Greece at the time, uh, then yes, they absolutely should be returned. But again, the central point to return to here is the unhelpful dichotomy that is often drawn when uh, people seek to show through their actions or through their words 
which side of the culture war divide they fit on, rather than thinking through each individual circumstance in its own right. And there tends to be a division between people arguing that uh, the, everything that is in British Museum or British Museums uh, deserves to stay there, and that everything in British Museums that was not found on the island of Britain uh, should be returned to where it came from. And actually, we need to remember that there are, in different cases, different arguments that apply and different conclusions that we might come to. Uh, it is also the case that in some circumstances, even where you can identify a clear successor to the, to the organisation or the body from which historical artefacts were taken, returning them to that place um, would unquestionably endanger them. Um, for example, returning Chinese cultural artefacts to uh, to Mao's China at the height of the Cultural Revolution would have almost certainly meant their destruction. Uh, returning Afghan artefacts to an Afghanistan controlled by uh, the Taliban would, again, almost certainly mean their destruction as uh, forms of iconoclasm, um, as the as the Bamiyan Buddhas were were destroyed in Afghanistan by the Taliban. So th- there is a genuine fear that returning artefacts from the British Museum. Uh, might lead to their destruction uh, and their loss of uh, cultural value to humanity as a whole. Uh, Of course, this is sometimes used as a disingenuous argument uh, by traditionalists to argue that all cultural artefacts if returned to anywhere outside of Britain would be returned to like a barbarous, savage place where they would inevitably be destroyed. This is clearly not true of all circumstances, uh, and so it is disingenuous to use it as a blanket argument, even though it might hold true in certain cases. And returning to our earlier point about language and the way in which uh, different cultures or different subcultures develop their own language, and often these words are unhelpful, um, the word decolonize is often used in this debate when we talk about museums and repatriating artifacts to the places they came from, um, is often unhelpful because it's so imprecise. And simply saying that we need to decolonize museums doesn't really express the nuance we need to um, show towards different particular situations and different particular artefacts, and also um, shows a sort of cultural affinity to a progressive side which removes some people from the debate. And it's important that when we discuss these things, we use um, everyday language that isn't coloured by a particular affinity to a progressive or a traditionalist mindset. So to summarise the key messages from, from this week's episode... Firstly, the culture war is an unhelpful dichotomy. Uh, To say that there is a progressive position and a traditionalist position, and that we must believe all of the progressive positions or all of the traditionalist positions uh, is a false dichotomy. There are thousands of culture war issues, there are thousands of nuanced possible positions on any one of those issues. And just like it is unhelpful to think about economic issues as left or right as blanket categories, it is not helpful to think as cultural issues as progressive or traditionalist. This is not a with us or against us stance, and this confrontational politics is not helpful and leads to polarisation in society. There is no single official right answer. Secondly, we, we can't sort history into heroes and villains. People are complex, events are complex. Um, that, of course, means that we shouldn't celebrate uh, history uncritically, we shouldn't be throwing up statues, we shouldn't be like you know, virulently defending statues and believing that they are a necessary part of our national identity, 
um, but nor should we simply be seeking to replace them with other statues. We should be thinking critically about historical figures uh, in an an academic, analytical sense. Finally, regardless of which side of the culture war you're on, and as we've said, we generally feel like we would fall on the progressive side on most issues, you cannot win a culture war um, by using shibboleths and dialects uh, which close off other people and which are impenetrable from the outside and which other people do not understand. In order to win a culture war, you have to be precise about what you mean. You have to disavow um, words and phrases which are too broad and fuzzy, and you need to convince other people. Convincing other people requires you to talk to them, not to talk amongst yourselves. Now, we hope that this episode and the following episodes on culture war topics help form part of that dialogue, our old favourite word coming out again. Um, So please do uh, forward this episode on to anyone uh, who you think would benefit from hearing it or anyone who you think would enjoy it. There are lots of different culture war topics that we'll be talking about in the coming weeks, um, but if there are any specific questions that you'd like us to cover or you'd like us to answer, please do get in touch. Equally, if there's anything in this episode or past episodes that you um, that you disagree with or you particularly agree with or you've got any feedback at all, please do get in touch with us. You can tweet us at underscore the violet underscore. You can send an email to contact.theviolet at gmail.com or you can visit our website www.theviolet.net. We hope you join us again next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>